The story is told of a farmer in a Midwestern state who had a strong disdain for all religious things. As he would plow his field on Sunday morning, he would shake his fist at the church people who would pass by on their way to worship at church. October came, harvest season came, and this farmer had the finest crop ever. In fact, he had one of the best harvests in the entire country. When the harvest was complete and he sold his harvest for lots of money, he bought an advertisement in the local paper which belittled the Christians for their faith in God. Near the end of his diatribe against Christianity, he wrote these words, Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response from the Christians in the community was quiet and polite. But in the next edition of the town's paper, a small ad appeared. It simply read, God doesn't always settle his account in October. In a world in which evil always seems to win, we have the tendency to wonder if God can really overcome evil. Does God really control what's happening or has he lost control? As we continue our study in the book of Daniel in a series entitled Fearless, we come to Daniel chapter 8. And here in Daniel chapter 8, we have a vision that God gives Daniel. And in this vision, it seems as if evil prevail against God's people. And it seems as if God's people can do nothing about it. It seems the people who try to fight are overcome. And if God's holy people cannot fight against this evil, then who will stop this evil? We want to take a look at that question this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Daniel chapter 8. As we mentioned before, Daniel chapter 8 is part of the end series uh, of the book of Daniel from chapter 7 to 12, which is the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel. We can entitle it Fearless also because as we know more about what God has revealed to us about the future, we can stand fearless in a world full of uncertainties. We can stand fearless before a world that doesn't know what's happening, but our God knows. Look with me at Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 to 2. It reads this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Now this is the third year of Belshazzar's reign, which is 551 B.C., two years after the vision we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 7, 12 years before the incident of the writing of the wall, which we preached about in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. Now, what did Daniel see? Look at verse 3 to verse 4. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. 
nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. He did according to his will, and he became great. And so we have here a vision in which Daniel sees a ram, and this great ram seems to have power to overcome everything in its way. Now, what kingdom does this ram represent? The Bible interprets itself. Would you jump down to verse 20 of the book of Daniel chapter 8? The angel Gabriel is instructed by God to give the interpretation to Daniel. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are, note this, the kings of Media and Persia. The Bible tells us the ram represents the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. If you remember from last week, just like the second beast of Daniel's vision, which was a bear. For the bear, one side of the bear was bigger than the other side. For the ram, one of its horn was bigger than the other. This represents the kingdom of the Medes and the Persian, showing the dominance of the Persian people over the Medes in their joint empire. Now, historically, the ram was especially important for the Persians. The guardian spirit of the Persian empire is portrayed as a ram. When the Persian kings would go into battle, he carries the head of a ram. Look at verse 5 to verse 7, the continuation of this vision. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Then he came to the ram, which had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at it with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moving with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke its two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. There was a second animal that appeared in Daniel's vision. It was that of a male goat. And this male goat... Unlike a traditional goat, only had one horn, a, a notable horn. And this goat rammed against the ram and broke the two horns of the ram. Now, what kingdom is represented by this male goat? Jump down to verse 21. The angel Gabriel identifies the male goat. Verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. The goat is the nation of Greece. Uh, and historically, the first king, as represented by the large horn, is the great king, Alexander the Great. Alexander was angry, full of rage against the Persian Empire. And that's what the Bible says. With great furious power, it ran against the ram. With great rage, there was no power to withstand him. It, it ran as if without feet touching the ground with great swiftness, as we've already talked about. And Alexander the Great was able to finally subdue Persia with a victory, historically, at Galgamela, which is near Nineveh, in 331 B.C. Now, you've got to remember, from Daniel's perspective, this is prophecy. It is hundreds of years before any of this happened. Greece is, is not... a uh, it's not a great nation at this time. Babylon is. Greece is a bunch of city-states that can't get their act together. But look historically as we look back at the historical accuracy of biblical prophecy. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of, its, in place of it, four noble ones 
came up towards the four winds of heaven. And the explanation of these four horns, look at verse 22. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And true enough, when Alexander the Great was at the height of his conquest and power, as he drove into modern-day India, his army rebelled, his story tells us. His armies got homesick, and so he had to go back home. But on his way back home, he was killed in Babylon. And historians differ as to how he was killed, not yet reaching the age of 33. And therefore, his generals began to fight amongst themselves who would be the next emperor. It wasn't another 20 years until four generals came out and they divided up the Greek kingdom. And the Bible prophesied that in verse 22. Out of the one notable horn, four kingdoms will arise, but it will not have the power of the original horn. And these four horns are Lysimachus, which ruled the northern part of Alexander's empire, Cassander, who ruled the western part. And what we want to focus on is Seleucus, the eastern part of Mesopotamia, as well as modern-day Syria, and Ptolemy, who became the Egyptian kings, the king of the north and the king of the south. We're going to focus on these two generals, or their two empires. Now, importantly, look at verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Out of one of these four comes a little horn. And the Bible says this little horn grows to be a, a great horn, exceedingly great. And it moved towards the glorious lands. The glorious lands biblically refers to Israel. This king will move against Israel. Now we have to note, there's a lot of horns here, you may get confused. But this little horn of Daniel chapter 8, referring to the third kingdom, is different from the little horn we studied about last week in the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 7. The little horn of Daniel chapter 8 of the third kingdom would serve as a prototype of the little horn of the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 7. Who is this small horn who becomes a great horn? History has identified this little horn as the man Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty from General Seleucus's empire. He ruled Syria from 175 to 164 BC. Antiochus IV was one of the greatest persecutors that Israel has ever known. In one assault on Jerusalem, 40,000 Jews were killed in three days. 10,000 more were carried into captivity. The height of his persecution came to a head in December of 168 BC. He led an army to try to conquer the king of the south, the, the, the Ptolemaic kingdom, Egypt. But the Egyptians, historically, had made a pact with the Romans. And so, unbeknownst to them... The Roman commander, Polypus Linnaeus, came and defeated Antiochus' army. Now, he is like a spoiled little brat. He is not happy. When you go on to conquer something, and he, he was very successful, a brilliant military strategist, you hate to lose. And when you lose, you're going to blame someone. 
So he's got his tail between his legs and he's going back to his home base of Syria and he's seething in anger. He has lost the south. And he wants to take out his frustrations on someone. And just so happened, he goes through the land of the Jews. And he comes to Jerusalem and he blames them. He's angry. He's furious. And in his frustration, he sends his general, Apollonius, with 20,000 troops and ordered the seizing of Jerusalem on the Sabbath when the Jews were resting. He slaughters them. And there, in an affront to the Jewish people, he brings a big idol of Zeus and he places it into the Holy of Holies, uh, the, the, very, the very temple of God. And he desecrates the altar by sacrificing for the Jews the very dirty pig on it. And this terrible act, the Jews refer to as the abomination of desolation. And this abomination of desolation would serve as a type for a future abomination of desolation, which the Antichrist will do to the Jewish people, as Christ predicted in Matthew chapter 24. This was such an affront to the Jewish people that they revolted. And in December 25 of 164 B.C., uh, a man by the name of Judas Maccabees and his three sons led what is called the Maccabean Revolt. You don't read about this because this happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is called the intertestamental time. And the Jewish nationalists led a revolt. They were able to kick out their foreign oppressors, rededicate the Jewish temple. And to this day, every year, the Jews celebrate the restoration of their temple with the Feast of Hanukkah. But look at the description of Antiochus in verse 11 to 12. He even exalts himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. But because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and note this in verse 11, and he prospered. Antiochus effectively exalted himself over the position of the superiority of Yahweh. He was able to, to terminate the sacrifices, the people's praise offering to God. It seems at this point that, that man cannot stand up to the evil of this world. How long will this persecution last? The question is asked in verse 13. Verse 14, the angel said to him, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And historically, the great persecution of Antiochus IV lasted for 2,300 days against the Jews until the Maccabeans revolted. That is, from our perspective, history. Now you say, Pastor, I didn't come this Sunday morning to, to get a history lesson. And if I were to test you right after the service, you'd probably all fail. Some of you may pass. But this is not a history lesson. Because the Bible tells us all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is beneficial for us. So how in the world do we apply this to our present-day situation? And that's what we want to talk about next. The little horn of Daniel chapter 8 has a double fulfillment. In the near future, from Daniel's perspective, this will happen 400 years from now, in the person of Antiochus IV, who will persecute the Jews. But in the far future, from our perspective, Antiochus 
is a forerunner. He, he will model what the Antichrist will be like in the future. And the Antichrist we talked about last week will appear at the Great Tribulation. And he will oppose the Son of God, the Prince of Princes. We mentioned this yes, last week, that in the biography of the Antichrist, he will come and he will befriend Israel. And he will gain the trust of Israel. However, the Bible tells us in the middle of the tribulation, Daniel chapter 9, as Antiochus did, so the Antichrist will also cause the abomination of desolation. He will destroy the rebuilt temple. He will cease all sacrifices. He will be an enemy to God's people. Antiochus did on a smaller scale what the Antichrist will do on a larger scale. And we'll talk more about this. Because for a temple to be destroyed, there must be a temple in the first place. And if you go to Jerusalem today, there is no temple. This is a chart of Solomon's temple at Solomon's time. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. There has not been a temple to this day. And to fulfill biblical prophecy, there must be a temple. But guess what? If you go to Jerusalem today, on the very Temple Mount of Solomon, there is a religious structure. But it is not a Jewish temple. It is a Muslim mosque. The third holiest site for Islam. This is apparently where they say that Muhammad went to heaven, received divine revelation and came back down. It's called the Dome of the Rock. And you've seen pictures of it, I'm sure. A golden dome in Jerusalem. If the Jews ever proposed to, to build their temple right next to the third holiest site of, site of Islam, you would probably start World War III. It won't happen, we think. I'll explain in further sermons perhaps how Revelation shares with us how this could happen. The Bible says the future temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will come and just like Antiochus did, he will destroy the temple and he will cease the sacrifices. Now, if Antiochus did on a smaller scale what the Antichrist will do on a larger scale, what should we be aware of? I want to give you four characteristics of evil that both of these four men exemplified. Four characteristics of evil. And these characteristics of evil are what the world emulates today. This is how the world is now. These four characteristics of evil is in the world today. And how are we as Christians to respond to this evil in this world? How then shall we live? But we must be aware of the evil that is permeating in this world. Would you jump down to verse 23 of the book of Daniel with me? Let's take a look at these four characteristics. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. Note this. Having fierce features, note this, who understands sinister schemes. <coughs> the first characteristic in the world today, as exemplified by Antiochus of the past and the future Antichrist, is that of deceit and deception. If you're writing that down, the characteristic of evil, number one, is that of deceit and deception. My friends, this is a world full of lies. It is a world in which Satan is very subtle, but he is a liar. And he seeks to fool you. He is the deceiver. 
Satan is very subtle to ask us to believe in lies that are very believable. You see, we often forget this equation that I teach my classes. Truth plus untruth always equals untruth. If you have something that's 99% true, but 1% untrue, it is still untrue. But Satan is very smart. He will teach us things that, that, that have truth to them. But a part of it is untrue. And so it is all untrue. And so we go to the scriptures, which is God's infallible, inerrant word. And we take God's truth and compare it with Satan's lies. Satan's lies are many and it has permeated into our world today. The lie that says, you know what? You can save yourself. You as a person can save yourself. I, you are smart. You're innovative. You're entrepreneurial. You can do it by your own bootstraps. Pick it up. If you're feeling bad, have positive thinking. Just think positively. Your life will be a better life. Just think positively. That is a lie. There's another lie out there that says, you can work for your own salvation. You do enough good works, you can work for your salvation. You can do it by yourself. I'm so sorry. But have you ever been sick before? If you're sick, you realize you have no power to do anything. But the world corrupts us into thinking, you are good enough. Another lie that Satan tells us is, you know what? You're not good enough. You're so bad a person that God cannot save you. God doesn't want people like you. You always disappoint Him. You say you'll never do it again, but you keep doing it. You know what? How dare you call yourself a Christian? That is a lie of Satan. But there's truth to that, but there's also lies. And so we believe it as truth. The lies of Satan even permeate into our families do not be surprised, my friends, if your friends, those closest to you, your family, try to fool you, try to take advantage of you. That is the world today. It is a world of deception. It is a world of dishonesty, especially as it deals with money. Money breaks apart family, and lies and deception is used. I like the story that is told of the devil and St. Peter. One day the devil challenged St. Peter to a basketball game. You get your team, I'll get my team. St. Peter said to Satan, how can you win, Satan? All the famous basketball players are up here. Satan replied back to St. Peter, how can I lose? All the referees are down here. You see, we as Christians try to live lives of integrity. We try to live lives uh, that, that befits a Christian. We try to live lives that are consistent with the word of God. And yet the problem is this world, the referees, those who determine what is right and wrong in this world are oftentimes dishonest, deceitful, deceptive. You need to understand, my friends, that this is a world of trickery and deception and dishonesty. And that is why life is not fair. It is not that God is not fair. God is very fair. It is that because in this sinful world, it is a world full of lies. A few weeks ago, there was a businessman and I, we were lamenting, talking about doing business here in the Philippines. And as many of you have lamented also, it is so hard to do business here and do it well and do it right. 
because of the rampant corruption in our country. And in all seriousness, this businessman said, you know, Pastor Steve, I've just given up. The only way to be successful in the Philippines is for me to be more dishonest than them. That's the only way. The only way I'm going to be successful is to be more corrupt than them. How sad a statement. But yet that's how many of us think. We've given up. This is the world. This is how the world is. And therefore I must comply or else I will not survive. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, But do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed. Do not follow the ways. It is a warning. It is a challenge. It is an encouragement to us as Christians. That in spite of how the world is, we are not to be like them. In spite of how the world is, we are to stand on our principles. And that which God has told us how we are to live our life. Yes, I know. I know the characteristics of this world. It is an evil, deceitful world. It is a world full of dishonesty. But I am not to be conformed to this world. I am to be renewed by the transformation of my mind. It is a warning to us. To know does not mean we must succumb. To know means we must be aware. Look at verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, note this, and also the holy people. The second characteristic of evil in this world as exemplified by Antiochus in the past and the future Antichrist is that of destruction. The second characteristic is destruction, specifically destruction of God's people. My friends, never think for a moment that the God of this world, Satan, is your friend. He is bent on destroying you. He is bent on destroying God's holy people. He knows the time is near. Revelations chapter 12. And Revelations chapter 12 tells us Satan knows the Bible. He knows that the end is coming. He knows that, that his time is near. And this is his attitude. If I'm going down, I'm taking as many people down with me as possible. The ways of the world is for the destruction of God's people. And just look in the news today. Our culture is less and less tolerant of the Christian faith. The culture that permeates this generation, the laws that are passed, are often anti-Christian. The culture says we must accept lifestyles that the Bible says God opposes. How is it that the world cannot make fun of Mohammed, but it's okay to blaspheme Jesus Christ? How is it that one cannot speak ill of the Muslim faith, but every day the Christian faith is tread upon? This world seeks the destruction of God's people. And you know what is so ironic about all this? What is so funny, in a sense, and amuses me, is that so many Christians want to be a part of the world which seeks their own destruction. So many Christians want to be a part of the world that seeks for their destruction. 
And so we want to fit in, and so we compromise, and, and we, we hope that they will accept us, and we hope that we can be one of them. And so we, we, we say, it's okay. I just want to be accepted. I just want to be a part of them. I want to be part of this world. And so we let go of the principles. And guess what? They still do not accept us. You know the point when they'll accept you? is when you become just like them. John fifteen nineteen. John chapter 15, verse 19. You want to wonder why you can never feel accepted? John chapter 15, verse 19. The Bible says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, there it is, would you underline that? Therefore, the world hates you. We forget that. The world hates us. We are to be in the world. We live in the world. But we are not to be of the world. Why do we so desire to be like the world which so hates us? You have to ask that question in your life. The characteristics of evil is bent on destructing, destroying the people of God. Be aware. Look at verse 25, the first part. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. The third characteristic in the world today, as exemplified by Antiochus of the past and the future Antichrist, thirdly, is that of selfishness. The characteristic of evil in this world is one of selfishness. He shall exalt himself in his heart. That's what Antiochus did, and that's what the Antichrist will do. The world is characterized by self. It's about me, myself, and I. It's about me, myself, and I. Me, 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 I, I, I. My benefit, my comfort, my vacation, my benefits. All about me. And you know what, my friends? This self-reliant on self and focused on self has permeated its way into the Christian life. Where Christians come before God and say, God, what about me? What about my fair share? What about my comfort and, and my priority and my time and my vacation time? What about my feeling? It's about me. You know, you know God, uh, I, I gave you a Sunday morning once a week. I expect to be blessed and you didn't. Me. God, you know, I gave you 10 minutes of my time every day. You should be happy with that. 10 minutes, my precious time. I'm a busy man. I gave you 10 minutes. You should be happy. You complain, I, I skip a day. God, you know, I already went on a mission trip this year. You wanted me to go to another one? God, I need my vacation time. Two out of 52 is tough. One of 52 I can deal with. And the permeation of the selfishness of the world has permeated itself, attached itself to the Christian walk. And where it's about selfishness as opposed to sacrifice. And the pride of our life says, it's about me. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things of the world. Well, if I'm not to love the world, that's going to entail sacrifice. And there it is. Sacrifice in one's life for the Lord overcomes the selfishness that this world throws at us. If you are selfish, 
you will realize that God is never fair to you. But if you begin to sacrifice, you will see the sacrifice that God did on our behalf. You know, I often think if God thought the same way we did, He wouldn't have saved any one of us. Not a single person. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. He did nothing wrong. He who knew no sin took on the sins of mankind. There is not an ounce of selfishness in the act of Christ. And if we want to emulate his life and the way he lived, if he can sacrifice his entire life for us, the one who would experience suffering and separation from God, what about you? Or do we still go as the world goes in the selfishness of our own self? Second part of verse 25. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. The fourth characteristic of evil today is exemplified by Antiochus in the past and the future Antichrist is that of rebellion. Rebellion against God. This is a world that raises its fist and rebels against God. And yet for many of us, this is the side we want to go on. What side are you on? You have to choose. The side of God or the side of rebellion. There are only two choices. There is no middle ground. The Bible is very clear on that. Do you live for God or do you rebel against Him? And in that choice to live for Him, you will sacrifice. There are things you have to give up. But that is the part of the choice you have to make to live for God. But if you make that choice to live for God, the rest of the world will rebel against you. They will not like you. Are you willing to say, it is okay? It is okay for me to be rejected by the world, but to be accepted by the Lord. And a lot of us, especially young people, struggling with their identity, looking to see where they fit in in this world, have a hard time fitting in and a hard time making that decision. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. My friends, our battle is against the ruler of the darkness of this age who is rebelling and inciting rebellion against our Lord. Which side will you be on? And unfortunately, even in my life sometimes, I'm standing in the background. I say to God, God, I'll, I'll be in the reserves. You, you send out the people first. I'll just stand in the back. But the choice we have to make now, no hiding, the choice is yours. Will you stand on the side of God or will you stand on the side of rebellion? Growing up in Texas, we were indoctrinated with Texas history. If you ever go to Texas, you know that Texans are fiercely independent. We pride ourselves as being the only state in the Union, the only one of 50 states that was once its own country. And so Texans are fearlessly independent. And we indoctrinate the elementary kids with histories of the glories of Texas independence. And you may not know the story because you didn't grow up in Texas, but boy, we knew the story of the Alamo. The Alamo, the final stand of 300 courageous men. 
300 against the tens of thousands of Mexican troops led by General Santa Ana. And there, the night before, the forces of Mexico were to come and destroy or lay siege to the Alamo, which was a, a Spanish mission near San Antonio, Texas. Colonel William Travis, uh, who was the commanding officer, gathered all the men that night and he drew a line in the sand. He says, man, there are only two choices you can make. If you stand on this side, you are saying, I want to go home. I, you have time to escape by night by horse. Go. I will not fault you because it is certain death. If you want to live, go and live in obscurity, but live a good life. But if you stand on this other side of this line, you will surely die. But you will die for the glory of Texas independence. Your battle here will allow Sam Houston, the general, of which, which Houston is named after, to, to get the reinforcements he needs to defeat the massive army of Santa Ana. But you will die, but you will die for the glories of Texas. History tells us that no man left. Everyone stayed. They were killed all the next few days. When Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana, which allowed for Texas independence, the battle cry was, remember the Alamo. Now, I know that may not fit in your cultural context, but the line is also drawn for you. And the question I pose to you is, which side will you be on? Will you be on the side that says, I want to live. I don't want people to, to knock on me. I don't want people to, to yell at me. I'm going to live my life, a Christian life, obscure Christian life, kind of be in the world, but not of the world, but just kind of hanging in there. But yet the Bible says, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ liveth in me. The side I challenge you to go on is the side that says you will die to yourself for the glory of the one who died in your place. You will die to this world because the world will hate you. Is that the side you are willing to stand on? Because if it's not, you go live your very cozy Christian life and never bring glory to the name of God. Or will you stand on the side of certain death, death to yourself, death to this world, to bring glory to the name of God? The choice is yours. Which side will you take? The last phrase of verse 25. And he shall be broken without human hands. This great verse tells us the final great truth. God triumphs over evil. My friends, it is not good triumphs over evil. It is God triumphs over evil. And God dealt with Antiochus. Antiochus was not killed by another general. Antiochus, no one stabbed him in the back. God killed him. He died insane in Persia in 168, 3, 3 B.C. God deals with Antichrist. The Bible says when the Antichrist raises an army to match against Christ, 
One word from the mouth of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, destroys the armies of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is thrown into the lake of fire. How does God deal with evil men? God will stand them before Him at the great white throne judgment, and He will say, I judge you for the life that you have lived. And they will plead their case, but if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, God says, I cast you into the lake of fire. God triumphs over evil. You know, I, I love biblical prophecy. Not because it's got cool charts and cool pictures. Not because it's interesting and we don't hear much about it. I love biblical prophecy because of the great theme it has. The great theme of biblical prophecy is that our God wins. Our God wins. It's a story of victory. It's a story of amazing victory. And yet we as Christians live very defeated lives. We forget the victory because we forget the cross. We forget the victory because we forget Jesus Christ. And therefore we live very defeated lives. Would you turn with me one last verse? John chapter 16 verse 33. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, note this, that in me, in Jesus Christ, you may have peace. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace that passes all understanding is found in faith in Jesus Christ. In the world, you will have tribulation. The Bible says that. In the world, the world will hate you. The world will rise up and rebel against God. The world will not treat you fair. The world will take advantage of you. The world will be dishonest. In the world, you will have tribulation. But what is your attitude? But be of good cheer. Be joyful. Be happy. Why? Love this. Underline this in your Bible. Highlight it. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I am victorious, the Bible says. The battle against evil is not man's battle against evil. It is God's battle against evil, and God has won. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, the work of salvation was completed, the victory was won forever. Satan was defeated at the cross we found victory in the cross. When you forget the victory in Christ, it's because you have forgotten the cross of Christ and Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, we realize this battle has already been won. And therefore, we deal with it through spiritual means. When we fight evil in this world, we claim the blood of Jesus Christ. We claim the cross. We pray that God would change the hearts of evil men because only the Holy Spirit can do that. We pray for people who abuse us and people who take advantage of us. Now, I'm not saying we are to be doormats in this world. There is a time and a place for legal action, and that's a different sermon for a different day. We're not to be doormats and have the world step all over us. But the great theological principle and reality is this. The battle has already been won. We claim the victory that is in Jesus Christ. 
and we claim it in all areas in which we feel we are losing. The devil found defeat in victory at the cross. The Christian finds victory in self-defeat at the cross. The devil found defeat in victory at the cross. The Christian finds victory in self-defeat at the cross. How many of you will die to yourself and die to this world to join the side of victory? The choice is yours. Will you continue to desire to have the world accept you and slowly compromising your faith until no one can tell you're a follower of Christ, but then say very proudly, the world accepts me. Of course they do. You look just like them. Or will you stand firm and stand bold and say, I do not need the world's acceptance. I do not need to be on the side of rebellion because I am on the side of victory. May God grant you a victorious life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I just thank you again for your words of comfort and encouragement your words of victory. And sometimes I live a very defeated life, and so do many of us, wondering, God, the evil of this world is not dealt with. And yet, Father, give us a heavenward focus, realizing you have overcome the world. You are victorious at the cross. And so we who lived very defeated lives, I cling to the cross of Christ. I cling to the one who shed his blood for me. I cling to the one whose unconditional love nailed him to the cross and proclaimed victory to all. May we arise, each person here, claiming the victory that is ours as children of the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray.